maybe a community platform or a newsletter um, platform, and and um, and which, which is what I would advise you do is start to build um, an an audience and create some value um, in a in a different way. So. Um, yeah, and it might be about building up specific to something that can only be be solved with with a product. Um, but if you can't get people to sign up to a newsletter that is relevant to the people that you're aiming at, then you're going to have um, much harder work um, getting people to, to to buy some software from you. Um, this is another big challenge with software. Is like people are actually pretty reluctant to spend money on subscriptions. They much, you know, people be. Uh, I'm sure some research of the specific numbers has been done on this, but it's like is you'll be much more likely to buy something for a hundred pounds um, as a one-off than maybe even a thirty-pound subscription, even if you know that you can um, cancel it. Welcome to the Quick Win CEO podcast. And the aim of this series is to talk to businesses and entrepreneurs and experts to help you understand key concepts for your business, along with three quick wins that you can take away and apply to your business today. And every week, we'll be finding out about the entrepreneur and diving into a different but important topic. And if you haven't checked out the podcast already, please do. There's seven episodes up already and this is the eighth episode and the episodes include What is Coding with Melanie Shatinsky if you want to get started with coding and you've got How to Prototype with Spencer Rares, perfect if you want to get started with looking at prototyping an app. You've got What is Cloud Accounting with Darren Frail from Crunch. You've got How to Create Content with Toby Moore and most recently, what is a podcast by number one podcast owner, Alex Chisnell. But today, this week, we'll be talking about SaaS. What is SaaS? Otherwise known as software as a service. And that's the question we'll be answering with serial entrepreneur, Jonathan Martwell. Now, Jonathan's business, Plain Scaling, advises businesses on how they can implement SaaS with impressive results, such as helping Three businesses go from zero to one million pounds in annual revenue, including serving over two and a half thousand businesses and employing 20 people, along with several SaaS businesses of his own under his belt. Now, Jonathan's resume certainly demonstrates his credentials, but not only this, you might have heard of the skiff but jonathan established the skiff a co-working space in central brighton with what over 100 members and they've been supporting entrepreneurs throughout the pandemic but also a bit of a side hustle he established a new initiative called kind ops and that initiative was to help businesses put people first supporting the wider community and prioritizing the planet now, this is going to be a great live episode, finding out why SaaS is going to be the best business model of the world, and it's already the best business model in the world. So here we go, Jonathan Markwell. Hey, how are you doing, Jonathan? Hi, Chris. Hi, everyone. So uh, thanks for coming on the show, Jonathan. How are you? Very good, thanks. Good, good. Let's so today. let's get stuck in straight into the questions. Firstly, tell me the last thing that you read or watched that 
kind of left an impression on you and it could be anything right so it could be a netflix series a funny video a book you read a quote you heard anything right well i i keep a few books on my um desk which i really like uh to dip into occasionally this one's one of my current favorites i really like it it's called your music and people by derek sivers it's a whole bunch of very small um lessons that he learned um when he was in the music business, I mean, he, Derek is well known for creating um, the uh, online store called CD Baby, which was a great place for independent musicians to, to sell music. But this book isn't really about that. It's about his um, a lot of what he learned as a as a professional musician, and um, and I just like it because it's really interesting looking at a different take on business from a completely different industry and one that I'm really not that familiar in at all. Oh, I was going to say, are you a musician yourself? But it doesn't sound like it. No, no. I mean, I've got a cello in the corner here, which I, I use very rarely, but I'm a very long way from being anywhere, uh, you know, or even aspiring to be a professional musician. Um, uh, <laughs> well, it sounds really interesting. I mean, why, why a cello? Why did you pick that? Hmm? I'm not sure. I mean, if you're asking a question, a decision that was made 30 years ago. <laughs> um, <for thereabouts. laughs> um, I do like, I like cello music, actually. Um, yeah. So may, maybe I just, uh, there were some tunes that I quite liked. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, that's really interesting about that book, though. I mean, taking a different perspective, like from from a more creative perspective, the, uh, a musician um, is is an interesting one. And what it can do, it can give you the kind of like those those edges that you might be able to apply to your business um, that you just wouldn't have thought about. It's quite outside the box. Would you agree? Yeah. There's. Um, it's just got really interesting alternative perspectives on things there's one story i really quite like in there called uh, just about pricing and um how when he was uh touring um and doing gigs at different universities around the states um he had a, a fixed rate for i don't know a, a two-hour set or something like that and i think it was um 1500 and uh the person that he was um he was trying to do the booking with said oh i don't know it's quite expensive if you do um if you do a one hour set, can we pay half that? And he said, if you want me to do a one hour set, I'll charge you $2,000. Um, and, uh, and it's just a really nice story about, you know, the, the reason why, which he then explained to this uh, booker was that, um, you know, I've got to travel all the way there and I really enjoy playing music. If I'm only gonna go and get half the enjoyment from the experience and I want more money <laughs> instead. And I can really see how, uh, how you know, I, I can feel the same when I'm doing, um, you know, some coaching or, or consulting. And if it's, you know, really, really tiny engagement, I like to get, you know, really into it, really understand uh, a business and a, and, a, and a shorter engagement is um, can be less, less fun, less rewarding. Um, That's really interesting. It's exactly the same for, for me as a consultant because, like, I like the bigger projects that I can get my my teeth stuck into and actually make a difference and make a change because, you know, it's not it's not always about you know financial um, incentives that we we do the things we do right we we do it because we want to make a difference or we we love what we do, so uh, I might have to pick up this book myself so uh, I'll definitely check that out. But um, I recommend the audio book as well. It's um, really easy listening. He's got. A perfect voice for um for for radio and um and for podcasts and things. Really, really nice to to listen right. to on a dog walk. Okay, well that's uh, that's going to be on my book list. 
Right. So in your own words, give me an understanding of what it is that you do and kind of um, your, what your business does. Uh, so I guess historic time, a software developer. Um, I spent most of this morning and most of yesterday writing code. So, you know, that's my uh, my profession. Um, but um, I've always been interested in the intersection of that with um, with building businesses in different forms. Um, and so uh, most recently, um, I tend to um, make more of my income. My business is, is, um, is advising people who are making software businesses and providing both the technical um, and, and business take on that. Um, I guess the short, shortish version. So give me an, an idea of the kind of a couple of your SaaS businesses that you've um, got running. Um, myself, I have one that's very early stage um, called uh, Good Reflect Kit, but um, the ones that um, are, are more impressive uh, at the moment um, are the, the, the three big ones um, that I've worked on are Coverage Book um, and Answer the Public, which were both with um, the team at PropellerNet. Um, so I started working with them back in uh, 2013. I think to begin with, and they had a, a great agency um, that was um, very profitable team of around fifty people, uh, and they decided, you know, what's the what's the next step for them, mm. um, and um, and they they tried lots of things uh, to to sort of get into doing doing software, um, a few few false starts, and decided they they'd like some assistance with it, um, and. Um, and I, uh, I, I kind of ran an internal accelerator and we experimented with a few ideas and eventually out of the end of it, long story short again, is um, these two businesses, Coverage Book, which is a tool for public relations um, professionals to, to create their reports um, for showing the outcomes that they produce for clients. Um, and, um, and the other is Answer the Public, uh, which is a uh, sort of um, content marketing research tool is one way of looking at it. it you stick a keyword into answerthepublic.com and it comes back and gives you a sense of all the things that people are searching for. So it's like um, uh, a supercharged way of uh, partially typing things into Google and seeing seeing what comes back. Um, and uh, yeah, and both of those um, businesses are doing doing really well with a pretty small team. It's far more profitable than uh, than the agency. Um, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's taken their business to to completely new new place. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's amazing that you can take like an agency model and turn it into this massively profitable um, software company now. Essentially, they're a tech company, um, and we'll cover like the benefits uh, uh, about that later. But what I remember about Pro PropellerNet and what what was the most famous um, for me when I was um, you know knowing about the agencies in the uh in the in brighton especially was that, that they had these these dreams that they put in a, a machine and then every what was it like employee of the month or something would get a, a dream um and it would come down the chute and it would basically they could do anything they wanted was it literally anything i mean did, did you see this in action yeah i i, I saw it in action um i'm not sure we ever had a dream ball when my name was in it because I I, uh, I was mostly on the on the outside, but I was you know very yeah. privileged to be able to be uh, in 
in those sort of end of quarter or end of end of year meetings when we hit the milestones that we wanted to hit right. and um and, and someone uh, someone got to have their dream ball drop um and it, you know it's a wonderful thing about working with um propellernet is that they've got this value set and this mission which is all about making life better um and um and finding ways to to do that for their their employees and wider community and, and the board um and uh, yeah the the uh, the Dreamball machine um, basically came out when uh, I think we, most of the time when I was involved, at least it was uh, sort of fixed to a revenue per head milestone. And so as an agency, um, they kind of struggled to go between um, 80,000 pounds per year revenue per person, per, per full-time person, uh, or getting up to 100,000. Um, and they got close to 100,000. And when we'd sort of do five or 10,000 um, pounds leaps in, in, in that growth, then it would be time to um, to release a dream ball and, um, and share um, uh, that with, with everyone. And, uh, you know, a couple of guys got to go to the World Cup in Brazil. Um, Alan, um, someone I worked with, um, he hadn't actually been in the company very long when he was lucky enough that that, that his uh, his ball came out of the machine and he got to um, ride a motorbike across Africa um, uh, was his was his dream and so uh, the company helped him get a micro, uh, uh, get a motorbike um, and um, yeah uh, and, and and go off on an amazing adventure another um, uh, woman. Um, uh, Ashe, uh, she always had a dream of, of um, putting a kitchen on wheels and um, making food around in different com- com- countries and company helped her buy a car and convert, I think, a caravan um, to, to have a go with that. Um, and there are all sorts of other, other great things as well. Crazy. Yeah, I just remember yeah. it. I mean, not only was it a good company uh, motivator, um, but also it gave... Uh, the, the, the kind of marketing out there because everyone knew about it, right? Everyone heard about it. And I thought this, this is so clever. I mean, especially, um, you know, considering what they do and it, it made a lot of sense. But uh, if, if anyone hasn't um, heard about this, you should definitely check out um, this process and um, this. this well, I'll tell you what, I've got, it's, it's another one of the, the books I have on my desk is um, Nicky Gattenby, who was the MD of Banana at the time. Uh, it's 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 filled with stuff like that. Um, the Dream Ball is just a part of one chapter, I think, in this book. Um, yeah. And uh, and you can find out all the different things that Propeller got up to on that on that mission to um, put put people first. Really. I'm I'm glad you mentioned it because I've forgotten the name. <laughs> but anyway, super super engaged is the name of the book. Super engaged. yeah, super engaged. Nikki Gattenby, and I'm sure you can get it on yeah. Amazon. So what drives you as an entrepreneur? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What's, what's that hunger in you? I guess it's, um, I like, like making things. So um, I've, I've got a, I mean, specifically getting out of bed at the moment, I'm, uh, I've, I've got a current routine to try and balance childcare um, in the lockdown where I get up at uh, literally 5.30, well, actually, I have to admit, I slept in a bit this morning, um, and um, I'm working until 12, and I try and mostly write code for that time. I'm, I'm, I've got a project I'm working on, um, but the thing I find most satisfying is is writing software that I know that people are going to use, and I've got some mm-hmm. people that I'm working with that are specifically going to use it, and they're going to use it with their clients, um, and, um, and yeah, and if I can if I can put some work in that lots of people can can benefit 
from that's pretty awesome and then the 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 sort of secondary to that is um uh kind of a little bit of a mission to just make work better it's a bit of inspired by propeller networks make life better um as a as a, as a sort of guiding idea and I'm, I'm really into the idea of making work better there's lots of ways that work can be better for people um and um in some companies it's easier to make work better than, than others um and part of that sort of betterness can be in what we as businesses do um for for, for employees so the, the dream balls fit with that um but also activities that we can do to support our communities or the, the rest of the world and the, and, the, and the planet and so that's sort of what spurred me into creating kind ops is is me basically i was already collecting little ideas um of uh, of things that i see businesses like my businesses do um and thinking that's one i'd like to save for later because i'd like to try and do it and and actually a lot of these there are lots of businesses i know they're in a position where they could try it now others they can sort of put that in their back pocket for for later um and it and sometimes you know some of the best businesses aren't doing particularly exciting things like some of the businesses that are that that are easiest to grow get most customers um and i've worked with some people that find it you can find it therefore challenging to um sort of really get excited about a project um like i think there's a bit of a movement calling it unsexy startups um uh but you know if you if you can do that um that work and it creates some value but then with um you're able to do it in such a way that you can do other things that that can have an impact um a wider impact um like if your if your business is is helping um widely pr companies although actually i found it quite easy to get quite excited about doing that because if you're meeting people and you see the impact that you're having on them that, that that's great but if if you're not really particularly um, excited about making the pr industry better you know what if you're making a profitable business um and uh you know with um with lots of great things going on for it um that give you the um the resources to be able to do more for your employees than you might otherwise be able to do or to to make bigger charitable donations or to um buy a forest of trees somewhere to to really seriously um go carbon negative um then um you know that that can be stuff to get excited about it's definitely a movement, um, especially with the younger generations, that the people are doing more of this or they're looking for employment in companies that are thinking about this. Um, I remember listening to a podcast with Bulb, uh, the, co- the, the founder of Bulb, and he basically has this mission that, you know, he wants to be able to sell energy cheaper, but also do it via renewable resources. Um, and I think that's... that's um, it's quite trendy at the moment. It's quite fashionable <laughs> to, to care about the planet, and and I, and I love that. And it's what what a what a kind of full circle we've come round. But talking about um, motivations, you probably don't know this, but um, I, I first met you on the Startup Sussex competition. Do you remember? You were a judge on that competition. I, yeah. I do remember, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was, was it? Day. Five years ago. Five. Probably over five, five years ago. Feels like it must yeah. be more. Yeah. 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 It was 2015. And uh, and I was a very much young entrepreneur kind of 
you know, had this SaaS business or started with my first SaaS business uh, and that kind of migrated into an agency. And then, um, but I just remember looking at what you did and what you, you kind of stood for. And I think at the time you were doing the skiff and everything. And I just felt that, um, this is what I want to do in my future. And actually you probably don't know this, but, um, you were quite pivotal in, in deciding what, what I'd want to do after the agency or within the agency was to be a SaaS um, uh, expert like yourself and, and kind of build SaaS businesses and, and grow. So uh, thank you for that, Jonathan. Appreciate that. Glad to, glad to help. <laughs> anyway, we've, uh, we've spoken about you as an entrepreneur, your business, and you've got this amazing business and you're helping all these other businesses. So let's talk about more about the topic, which is what is SaaS? I mean, do you have like a go-to definition for SaaS or software as a service? Uh, I guess it's um, it's it's software that is um, usually remotely hosted um, and um, and therefore it you know, can be delivered um, uh, almost in a way that you might finance something. So so I guess. I should have practiced this uh, this response, but um, you, it's software that you can um, buy without having to buy it outright. So you don't have to put mm. all the all the money in um, as a customer upfront to to buy it and then be stuck with it. Um, and um, and it's usually hosted on on the internet so that you uh, don't have to install it anywhere or look after it as a customer. It's it's looked after for you while you mm -hmm. use it. Um, other people have better definitions of SaaS than that. <laughs> no, I think yeah. I, I think you pretty much nailed it, to be honest. I mean, um, for me, so, SaaS is, uh, it's, it's, it was a new movement, right? Moving away from software that was installed on PCs, but basically creating this ubiquitous um, ability to, to have software anywhere in the world because uh, it was browser based and it's very much internet based um, and it wasn't so hemmed in by the devices that that they had to work on right I, I mean the software yeah. that you have to put on your pc and that's it and there's nothing you can yeah. you can do but you can literally go anywhere in the world and take that software with you because all you do is rely on the internet and, yeah. so and tough, the thing so is go on you could say that it, the thing to contrast it with is um, for those of us that were around back then in the nineties, buying software off the shelf um, would mm. be a, would be a big contrast. Um, and also, but nowadays, like apps for your iPhone, um, with, with some exceptions, you're downloading those, you're buying for them usually outright, um, and um, and then running them on your device rather than having yeah. someone else run them for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very much different to that. Um, but I think SaaS became really sexy from Silicon Valley, right? I mean, they're the ones that kind of really pushed this down our throats and said, you know, there's a new way of doing these things. And and I think that the way, that, like you mentioned earlier, that the fact that it was lower cost and there was like no setup fees, you could basically just pub, but pay for a month. And then after that month, if you don't want to use it again, that's it. You, you can kind of let it go. So yeah, I think I think there were there were some Silicon Valley firms with lots of um, cash and, and marketing power to put behind mm -hmm. this. The, the the best example is probably Salesforce, um, 
who, who were Mark, Mark Benioff, um, sort of leaving Oracle where he worked before, which was more of a traditional selling licenses um, company to hosting his CRM Salesforce in the cloud um, mm -hmm. and, um, and charging people uh, monthly or, or annual fee to, to use it. And they, um, I remember their marketing had, um, they used to give out stickers with no software written on them in sort of a you know, red uh, sign of a cross through it. Um, but I don't, they're probably not the ones that inspire me the most because they, you know, with, with Silicon Valley um, companies, they, they often require huge amounts of cash to build up their position, like certainly coming out of Oracle, um, um, building that. And they had a lot of cash behind them to, mm. to, to, to mm. build Salesforce. And, you know, not, not that many years later, the, the one that sort of become more of the, um, the sort of guiding light, I guess, in, in the, the SaaS circles that I'm in is more, say, Basecamp. Um, I was going to mention Basecamp. I was literally going to say that. Yeah, I mean, they're no, no means the first um, software as a service, um, but they showed um, that they, they had a great demonstration of um, and were very public about they were an agency and they built this as a side project to scratch their own itch. Um, and they put it up online and on a single server and started telling um, their, their audience about it. And, um, and, and people came and then became profitable very quickly. Um, but without any external um, funding to get them that far. Mm. And there are actually local examples of, of this as well. Um, Create.net, who are actually one of my clients as well, um, they, they, uh, they're they a build-your-own-website service, and they're over 19 years old now. So actually, I think um, it might be older than Basecamp, or certainly older than Basecamp and software, if not um, the, the company that started it. And... Um, and yeah, they, they, they've been helping people with their software, selling it month by month or year by year and hosting it for, for all that, that time. And, uh, and Simon, when he first built it, he was doing contract work um, to, that funded it. They never took external funding to, to do it. I'm looking forward to talking to Simon. He's going to be on our podcast in the next couple of weeks. So um, we're going to find his, yeah, his story is quite remarkable considering, you know, it, almost like a pioneer in, in the you know early 2000s to, to kind of go down this route so uh, really looking forward to that one um I, I think what are the benefits then for creating um for, for a SaaS business model I mean should businesses consider implementing a SaaS business model uh there's lots of different ways to look at this I like to start with the customers benefits first um mm -hmm which um, they, they don't have to um, spend as much upfront as they as yeah. they would normally. So it's much lower risk. And they usually, uh, depending on exactly what they're buying, they're not locked in. So they can, if they decide it doesn't work for them, they, they can leave. Um, but also they don't have the, the burden of maintaining it um, or keeping it up to date. Um, mm. If anyone's worked in a large corporate and knows about you know licenses expiring and the amount of pain that that can cause with having to get servers updated and, and, and licenses renewed on on things to keep call centers running or whatever it's an absolute nightmare but if you're mm. um if you're if you're buying that software as software as a service that's not something you have to worry about it gets updated people make the decisions and look after the security and all the rest of it for you so that you're not bringing that burden um into your company along with 
with the software. Um, so that's some benefits for customers. Also, the customers, um, or the way it should work, and it, you know, with, with the better software providers, it does is that you know, if they if they continue to pay and they show that they're getting value from it, the people that they're buying from have the means to continuously improve it. So that software does get better and better over time, rather mm. than um, it just stagnating and people not being interested and updating it because they've already sold it to you and now they've moved on to to something mm. else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from um, from a business perspective, and I guess you know, getting to that question of why it's such a, a, a great model for for to, to sell it, is that um, f- for me, it's the it's a business model that really shows that you're creating value month in month out for your for your customers, and you're re- rewarded for that. Um, it's very easy to um, predict. Um, changes in revenue be that growth or if you get to the point where um it's it's leveling out or or it's going to start to decline you you get a lot of warning about that um by having lots of customers paying you relatively small amounts of money on a on a recurring basis um so it can be it can be very resilient i know lots of SaaS businesses um i was in touch with through the the pandemic when you know when we had a you know, that crisis time in March and April where lots of people were stopping um, paying for things. And yes, most of the SaaS businesses I know saw a bit of a dip because people got a bit bit tighter. Um, but for, for most of them, with, with some exceptions that are very specific, they, they were able to, to, to come back from that. And they had enough margin built in that their businesses have really largely been unaffected. Some of them actually benefited from, um, from, from the way that the market changed through that but these changes don't happen super fast because you're doing lots of small de- deals that compound mm. into into more more revenue over time yeah i mean that's that's a really good point that consistency of income from the recurring revenue and and i like the fact that you are constantly improving the software with the with the features um and whereas before it would be kind of very staged releases and you'd have to buy the upgrades um but also as a business you can better predict uh, how much income you're going to come in and on the growth and everything because it's, it's a lot more sustainable it's not like big chunks of work or and it's 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 just incremental very much um moving forwards on on a weekly basis as you implement features yeah and one one thing i really like about it is even in a very small scale business that maybe has one or or a a dozen people um it becomes a a system um with some numbers that you can look at that give you the health um at quite a high level you can see where the business is going how how it's doing um and you can you can depend quite a lot on on that um and you've got this system of customers coming in for for trials through one end and and then a portion of those converting into into becoming customers and eventually um hopefully a relatively small portion of them um finding that their time with the software is over and they're moving on to other things but they're all numbers that you can track and once you've got a reasonable number of of customers say 100 plus or or more um they're all relatively stable and you can go and just pick one part of that system and and do some work on it and it has a positive impact on or it can have a positive impact on everything else um uh which kind of reminds me of you know of computer games that i play as a kid you know if it's sim city or um 
uh, those sorts of um, strategy games, you can you can build these um, little systems um, to to incrementally improve different parts of your business, and you can measure the the impact on them. Whereas if you're running an agency and you're only doing you know a couple of deals a month, or um, or sometimes even even fewer than that, big ones, it's very difficult to get have a feedback loop where you can see whether or not it was just luck that got you that last deal, or if it was actually mm. the system that you put in place that's that's working. Because you need the the volume of um, of customers and users to be able to see those numbers and really work with them, manage them. I love that. It's it's like an engine, right? You're creating an engine that 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 is constantly um, perpetual in in terms of its motion, and you're looking at all the stats. And investors must love this as well. I mean, it's one of those things that if you can see all these numbers and you can see uh, that the lack of risk, the investors must love love a good uh, SaaS business as well, right? Yeah, it's changing um, investment for the better now that. SaaS is a very mature model, and and people have a very very good sense of what what a good SaaS looks like. Um, people that would be um, you know that have money to invest in relatively high risk ventures can actually look at a, a SaaS that's doing you know relatively small amounts of money, maybe a, a, only a thousand pounds a month um, or a thousand dollars a month, and say you know, the fact they've got to that stage, you know, we've we've got enough data to know that that's possibly the hardest bit to. <laughs> To get through, and so if we put some cash in at this point, it's a lot lower risk than taking some um, kind of bet on growth on an idea stage or, or something that's just a just a prototype. And so they're willing to put um, cash in on on better terms um, with an expect with with lower expectation and high rewards. Like you don't have to turn that into a billion dollar company if the risk is lower um, for for them to be able to see the, the returns that they're getting. So it's creating some interesting alternatives forms of investment which um i'm find much more interesting where i've gone for a period myself of just being completely anti the world of um of investment because uh with you know other kinds of um models or earlier stage investing um you're you're just buying lottery tickets and hoping that or that one of them will become a massive massive success rather than just a, a decent success for the founders um and the result is of that is that if you go down that path of taking VC money, your the investors then have an expectation that you will do everything you can to to grow at that pace that they need you to 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 grow at, or just die completely, so that they can then get the tax benefits of you <laughs> of you being um, dismantled. Um, yeah, so I think it's just um, it, it's making a healthier um, way of looking at. Um, an investment that's that's open to a wider range of people um and you know there's still obviously room for high risk stuff but for people that don't have that appetite um you don't you don't have to be going in that direction to to get some external funding if you need it vcs are uh, not something to be taken lightly and um i've read plenty of books about this um were uh, lost and founder um, the the guy who founded Moz was very uh, vocal about this. Um, so if that's another book everyone yeah. should read. I really enjoyed that yeah. one. Um, Rand Rand Fishkin. A, a, Rand Fishkin, that's the one. Yeah, and he, he's actually inspired a lot of this new movement of investment that I was talking about. 
his latest um, company, Spark Toro, um, he decided to raise some some money for. Um, uh, but he came up with a completely new kind of um, term sheet, or is quite quite different compared to what professional investors are used to, whereby essentially instead of um, saying that he's going to have this um, amazing growth, he said, no, the, the, this is, um, the exchange is this. And what we'll do is um, we'll cap our salaries as, as founders to market rate for software developers in Seattle, I think they said. And as soon as we make more money than that, or if we want to take more money out of the company than that, then we'll consider that a dividend and start giving you cash back as investors. So most tech investors expect that they only get a return when the company is sold or it floats on the stock mm. market or another investor buys them out but in some other kind of way. And so um, his different approach, um, which is probably, you know, not many miles away from what lots of industries have been doing for a long time, is to say, no, no, we're going to make a profitable business sooner. Um, take some of the risk out of it. You'll be able to start getting returns on it when we get returns out of it as founders. Um, and um, and there have been uh, investment um, organizations the most obvious one there is uh, Tiny Seed, which is, has um, a set of terms, uh, founder-friendly terms like that, that are derived directly from the approach that, that Rand Fishkin um, took with, with his investors. Yeah, I remember him saying that he wasn't the most highly paid member of staff in his company. And I, and I just, I, honestly, I felt this is crazy. This is, you know, he should be rewarded for his hard work and his risk and his energy into this. Uh, and I remember he turned down an offer to, I think it was HubSpot, uh, and he wished he'd taken that. But um, definitely a book everyone should read. We've got a, a question here from Adore Marketing. Is it best because it maximizes efficiencies? So I think there's twofold to this. So there's the, probably the whole performance of the actual software itself. It, it kind of scales itself. It manages itself in, in some respects um, and therefore saves you time. Um, but also maximizes efficiencies, I would say, um, in terms of what you're offering as a service. So you don't have to do it. A machine is doing it for you almost, um, you know, turning, if you were turning yourself into a robot, this is what the robot, you know, Chris would do. Um, what's your, your opinion of that? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a business that's easier to make profitable with um, uh, selling your time as an alternative. Also with you and I are talking from agency positions or consulting positions, you know, there's, there's a bit of a limit, maybe, you know, some people might argue it's a bit of a psychological limit of, of um, how much you can sell a unit of your time for and agencies feel that, especially if they're working with large organisations that have an expectation of what the maximum amount they're expected to, that they're willing to pay for the time is. And with, um, when you're selling something, uh, any other kind of product and software being one of them, the, the, the time taken to produce it is taken out of the equation. It's much more about an exchange of, of value um and so um you know you can you can boil all your decades of expertise into um in into a software and um and sell it um in a way that's both affordable to your customers and also over time um can can compensate you for, for you know, more aligned to the amount of value that you've created for for them um and so you end up um you know where when you're successful at doing that and everything else lines up um 
you can you can create a business that that can make you hundreds of thousands of pounds per employee um, per year, whereas an agent agencies often get stuck at that sort of maybe a hundred thousand pound limit, depending on um, what industry you're in and where in the world you are. Yeah, I mean, it's well, it's because you have time and time means money right it's it's not you're not productizing what you're offering as, as such and therefore it doesn't scale um and there's probably a lot of listeners here that uh don't necessarily have software or even consider making software there's there's um there's consultants um who probably want to turn their business into a more of a um a, an automated SaaS type business so therefore i mean should these kind of people create software What's your opinion on that? Uh, very carefully. Um, like it's not, it, it can seem um, wonderful when you look at the financials of other people's uh, SaaS businesses, but the reality of SaaS can be um, can be quite hard work. You, you've got um, software to build. There's loads of unknowns in in building software and the less you know about building software the less equipped you are to to deal with some of those um just purely technical challenges um then the actual the biggest problem in 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 sas and it might even answer what the biggest mistake most sas startups make which is one of the questions in in here is that the um you know at least 50 percent, maybe more than 50 percent of the problem of uh, of creating a a successful software as a service business is your distribution of that um, of, of the value that you've created. So assuming you've created something that is um, is valuable, maybe you know it's valuable because it's scratching your own itch where you have one or two um, customers that are paying you for it. The next biggest problem is finding enough other customers to be able to turn it into um, into into a profitable business and and too many people you know that's that's an afterthought and you get very excited about building the business um or building the software first rather than figuring out how you're going to to distribute it i mean i've always said to companies that your tech should be 10 percent of your budget and your marketing should be 90 percent because it's it's the case of getting it out there and actually um yeah if you look at these big companies they spend massive amounts of money getting it out there and so if you can't afford that kind of level of budget, then, you know, you shouldn't even consider it. And, um, but I, I definitely think. I, I might have to counter that a little bit. I mean, it, that's, that's, Ooh, a, please. That isn't it? that's an extreme view. I mean, I, um, there are, that, that could work really well, um, but you need to have a bit of balance. And part of the reason that you need to, I would say a bit more balance than that is the realities of the, um, the software industry at the moment is that there are um, not very many people for a for a whole lot of jobs, and so you need to um, developers end up being extremely expensive, um, and and just looking after and maintaining software ends up being extremely expensive. Um, so I don't I don't want to scare people off entirely by 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 uh, by saying that ninety to fifty. 90-10%. What we probably should say is, as a founder that's non-technical is that's probably where you need to be spending your time is 90% on the on the marketing and distribution so you have a, um, a reliable channel and 10% on the on the product um, mm. so that so that yeah so it's an attention thing maybe rather than a budget thing. 
Yeah, so for me, it's like if if you're not prepared to put in that effort or the value um, into getting it out there, then there's there's no point. Is basically what I'm saying. Like it's like building a website and then hoping people just turn up. Um, it's it's that kind of thing that you need to solve a problem, right? And a problem that people are willing to pay to solve. And and that's another big thing um, that people don't really take into account when they go into to a SaaS business. Have they truly understood the problem? Um, but I mean, that's really interesting in terms of the way you see the kind of the, the technical part of it is that, you know, it's only like, software developers are expensive but also there's other ways of creating software right so i mean how if you were going to make a prototype tomorrow what would you um start building it in other than if you weren't a a technical founder what would you do what's your next steps um i think one of the things i'm I'm kind of doing it might relate actually to another question i can see popping in here about thoughts on off-the-shelf products like Mighty Network. I don't know Mighty Network specifically. I have a vague idea what I think it is, but um, maybe a community platform or a newsletter um, platform, and, and, um, and which, which is what I would advise you do, is start to build um, an, an audience and create some value um, in, a, in a different way. So... Um, yeah, and it might be about building up specific to something that can only be be solved with with a product. Um, but if you can't get people to sign up to a newsletter that is relevant to the people that you're aiming at, then you're going to have um, much harder work um, getting people to, to to buy some software from you. Um, this is another big challenge with software. It's like people are actually pretty reluctant to spend money on subscriptions. They much, you know, people be. Uh, I'm sure some research of the specific numbers have been done on this, but it's like is you'll be much more likely to buy something for a hundred pounds um, as a one-off than maybe even a thirty-pound subscription, even if you know that you can um, cancel it. Um, so you, you've got more work to do to sell it because people understand what what they're committing to. So you want to test that you can you can get those little commitments um, from from people along the way. Um, so yeah, so the, so building the audience with maybe Mighty Network, if that's what that does, or or um, something like ConvertKit um, as a as a newsletter um, platform, um, and and there are various others. Um, and then the other thing to do if you're non-technical is to is to build more of an appreciation of, of what it, what's involved in creating software. And there's lots of ways of um, of trying that now um, from HTML tutorials. Um, to uh, actually, you know, some people, the most technical thing they've done, and which is very technical, is creating like a Google Spreadsheets template. And there's a market for, for Google Spreadsheets templates. If you can make a, a spreadsheet that is so so great that you can give it to other people and, or sell it to other people and they can copy it, um, and along the way you find out about, you know, what some of the pains that you have to overcome to just sell a spreadsheet to someone, um, you know that that's a that's a great experience, and then you can level up again and use um, a lot of no code tools. Um, there are people that have worked out ways to distribute spreadsheets using things like Gumroad to to do the, tra- the make the transaction happen, and then Zapier to send the right signals to different places, maybe to give people access to a to a Google sheet, um, uh, uh, or maybe a, another service like Airtable also has sort of 
functionality that you can wire things together like that. And then the the, the leveling up again, you might use a no-code tool. I think that you've had someone talk about no-code and prototypes before, something like Bubble or um, or Webflow, maybe, where you can start to have something live on the internet that looks and feel starts to look and feel more like a like a SaaS. Um, and um, and there are some SaaSes out there that are made um, like that, and you just wouldn't know that, that what's behind it is someone that's not a developer that's managed to cobble together a few different services. So, so experimenting we- with those things will give you an appreciation of what's involved, such that you know. Um, or a really nice outcome is that even if all you've created is a prototype and you don't think it's fit for anyone to actually buy, um, you've got something that's excellent to show a developer that a developer will be far more motivated to create because they know they can see all the problems and they know how to, to fix them. And um, the other thing that's going to motivate that developer is the fact that you've not only put that much work in, but hopefully you've already got people using it in some way mm. as well. Mm. Yeah, getting traction is really key to this because not only that you potentially have money coming in, it proves to yourself that it's worth investing in, um, but it also proves to other people that it's worth investing in. But the other kind of key point is that you can iterate and improve. So if you've got people who um, essentially are telling you what they want from the products, you can kind of take that feedback and that advice and keep um, keep that coming in. And before you spend massive amounts of money on a on a, a developer, I mean, talking about getting a um, a developer on board. Say you are at that stage. I mean, would you prefer to get a co-founder or would would you prefer people, I mean, getting a co-founder is quite obviously tricky in terms of having the same motivation. Um, or would you say just make enough money and get investment um, or bootstrap until you can afford a, a developer yourself? What would, what would you say? It, it depends on lots of things. It depends on, you know, what your current situation is. You know, with Proponet, for example, um, when they decided they wanted to get into this, uh, they had one long-term employee that had taught himself how to um, code. It was extremely proficient, even though that wasn't his main job and he really wanted to, to do it. Um, and they also hired someone out of university um, who had only recently learned how to code to sort of come in and he was, you know, super motivated as well. And so part of my role was was kind of coaching the two of them to, to make commercial software for the first time. But they they ultimately, we look back and it was like like a full year's worth of profits that they invested into that by taking those the, the team of people involved off of um, client projects and, and, and spending money on, on other things like me um, to, to make it work. Um, it's going to depend on the investors that you have as to what they're prepared, they're happy for you to spend money on it'd be surprising if you were to you know you'd you're going to have to have had something pretty special going on likely some pre-sales or or a massive community or something of some sort to be able to get external investment before you've got a developer that's um fully on board helping you if if you if you're going to be dependent on on software um to, to build what you need to build um yeah so i don't answering that question is is a is a bit of a it's going to be a case by case thing and um you know you should absolutely you know talk to people about about what you're what you're working on and um 
and get to know different developers and it might just be that um some stars align somewhere and you meet someone that's uh, that has the, the technical skills and, and is excited about what you're doing if you don't have the, the cash to hire them or or maybe they're um yeah they're, they're, they might be interested in working in a way which which you can um afford to to pay for but there are there are very few developers around that will work for free or just equity only on this sort of thing unless you get them extremely excited somehow and developers um are in general quite difficult to get excited <laughs> about things when you, especially when there aren't users involved or or you know something exciting going on mm. no i completely agree and i i, I... I, I like the fact that um, you're being very real, that it's a case-by-case basis, right? It depends entirely on what what it is that you're trying to, to do or the, what your business is doing at the moment. Um, and and that's the kind of advice I would give as well, like depending on what, what I heard from them, um, how I would feel. I mean, because some people are completely not, uh, novices in, in technical fields and they they need um, a guiding person to kind of help them go down that road. And that's where maybe a founder, a co-founder will probably make more sense. But finding that person is, is very difficult. Um, but I really like the idea of just building the business without the technical element at, at the heart of it and that you're using all these different, you know, combinations of software and no code platforms and, and the like to kind of really prove out the model um and it's something maybe um young developer self myself would not have really thought about i would just get s- straight stuck into the code but now i'm looking at it i'm going well actually i've still got to maintain it i've still got to work on it I've still got to add features what's the easiest way of proving out this model before um i kind of commit myself to a a journey um that i essentially don't don't have time for and so therefore i'm looking at these other things to kind of prove that out and convert kit is actually one of them um that i've been starting to use um so i love your advice on that um so Everything we've spoken about today, let's let's cover kind of what your quick win recommendations are. Um, if we had three of the bits of advice that you would recommend, what what what's the three things that you would give us? Yeah, so the um, it's it's sort of going back over what I've what I've already shared. It's like build um, build that audience of of some sort. Make sure you're you started to build relationships with the people that could be your software company customers one day um, and um, and do what you can to solve their problems as soon as possible and really get to know them and learn what their problems are and be open-minded because you might find out that the thing that you could create that's of most value to them is not the idea that you have um, to, to, to sell to them. Um, and so getting to know them earlier um, and um, and, and helping them in smaller ways first um, can, uh, can de-risk everything that you're doing significantly um number two would be um learn to uh or ha- have a go at learning to code in some way or or undertaking some kind of technical activity so um and this is particularly if you're not not a technical person because then you have more empathy for technical people when you end up working with them when your sas gets gets that that stage um and 
you know, I've I've worked with um with people that um have you know very light skills in HTML and they you know they put together a couple of their own websites before quite quite crudely, but it was wonderful working with them and um uh, and we got them to either you know we we were able to teach them as we were going and show them how to use Git as a version control system, for example, and, and level up, and they were able to go and then change some copy in the app and do their first commits, and you know that you, you can. Yeah, having that as a goal as a founder to be able to contribute in some way alongside the other technical people that you want to work with rather than um, trying to distance yourself from it is gonna is gonna make you much better better position to to be a software business owner. Um, the next and final third um, thing is to start selling in some way, sell something, get used to to doing that. Um, and um, I mentioned Gumroad um, to to sell a product. Uh, like I've, I've I've worked with a few many clients over the years where I've said this one, and and they're often reluctant to do it. But the ones that are most successful at some point end up writing an ebook anyway, <laughs> um, and and selling it even when they don't need the money from selling it because they realise the the value exchange from um, doing that and how it creates a completely different dynamic with your audience. So. Um, Getting used to selling things online with something like Gumroad, or, or even if you make something, you know, the simplest version of your SaaS using something like Stripe, um, which is a harder thing to integrate at the moment that will get that will get easier. And um, and I, I'd actually personally use um, Paddle, which is um, a slightly different way of selling software where they handle all your taxes and everything for you. Um, using one of those free tools. Um, other ones like Mighty Network might do it. Podia is another good sort of platform for, for just selling things online, building up an audience and um, and learning all those skills that, that are required, whether you're building a SaaS or if you're selling an ebook. Um, you, there's some basics that you need to need to be comfortable with. Yeah, great quick wins there. I really love those. Um, people are going to get a lot of value from, from those um, quick wins to focus on because that's a lot of thing, right? the the whole world of SaaS is so big and so if people wanted to learn about SaaS what where would they go what what resources would you recommend that they they look at the the very best sort of comprehensive primer on on this is written by Patrick McKenzie at um who works at Stripe now um and if you search for the business of SaaS on google it's uh, it'll be on a stripe.com domain but i'm pretty sure it'll be the top thing that that comes up uh and um it's got you know all the detail there is is fantastic um yeah so i'd, I'd go for that and you're, you're very welcome to ping me if you um if you have an idea that you want to chat about i'm working on some things which are with the intention of making this this stuff easier um, for for people that are non-technical, I'm working with three coaches um, slash consultants at, at the moment that have um, ideas and they've got audiences built up of their own already. And the idea is to 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 create the uh, a SaaS that that's a good fit for for them and their and their their customers that doesn't have quite the maintenance costs of, of building your own from from scratch. Um, and it's got all the stuff in it that I've learned from the last 10 years or so. If you're interested specifically in that, you could go to reflectkit.com where you won't see very much, but you can put your email address in a box and I'll get back to you. 
Sounds really interesting. I was going to say, how can people um, contact you? Reflect Kit, and where else can they they go? Uh, you, you can find out a bit about me at jonathanmarkwell.com or you can follow me on Twitter at J-O-T, which is why I put that name on the screen here. And, uh, and am I right to say that you're one of the first people in the UK to use Twitter? Apparently, I was the first, I have the, the earliest Twitter account um, among Brits. Um, I have a very low user ID number, um, and uh, and one of the national newspapers said that I was in one of the in the top in the, in the among the first hundred and forty that were still active, and that was a few years ago. So it's like wow. yeah, a bit of a trivial trivial claim to fame because um, I was yeah. that interested in software developments back in 2006 i think that was right <laughs> that's it just shows you i mean um you know you've you've clearly seen a trend there and you've, you've got onto it before it became a big thing um so uh it's clearly uh someone who knows what to look for when it comes to software but thank you for your time i really appreciate that jonathan um and people are going to get a lot of value thank you chris it's been great so there you go software as a service well you'll be building software using a SaaS business model with these quick wins quick win number one build relationships with the audience that could be your customers one day Quick win number two, take steps to learn coding or understand technical elements so you can converse with your technical team. And quick win number three, get used to selling online. Sell something straight away, even if it's just an ebook. But what was your favorite bit of the show? Tell me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube, where you can find me with at Hair Digital. And don't forget, you can also watch this show on YouTube or listen on all major podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify. And whilst you're there, I'll be forever grateful if you subscribed. And if you leave a review, I'll make sure to give you a shout out on a future episode. But thank you for listening. And until next time, I'm your quick win CEO, signing out.